Welcome to Generations Church Podcast, a podcast about everyday people committed to expanding God's family because of Jesus for generations to come. My name's Johnny. I'm the engagement pastor here at Generations Church, and I'm sitting here with our lead pastor, Kyle, and we've recently started a new series called Known. You know it. (laughs) We've been searching through the book of Colossians, specifically going through Colossians chapter one, and today we're just going to have a discussion where we go back to this past weekend's teaching time, and we're just going to expand out some concepts, some Christian-y words that Kyle (laughs) threw around. I'm going to make him expand them out, point us back to some scripture, really talk about this and bring this back to a 20, 20th century, like modern day. 21st century. 21st century. John, you're a century behind, man. Dude, I Come know. On. It's rough. But you know what? We're going to dive right in today. And Kyle, one of the concepts you threw out this weekend is a concept you throw around a lot. Now, yep. I know you're really proud of these. It's your progress <laughs> over perfection. It's your values list. But you really yep. hit on this one called progress over perfection. I just want to ask you, where did this come from? Where did you get this in Scripture? How did this come to be? And what does it look yeah. like when we put this into practice? You're right. We use this value very generously around our church. And just so we're all on the same page, the way that we have used our values is part of a grid to help us make decisions and to establish priorities. And so values for us really are a way to filter, to sift through all of sometimes really good options, but to to make the best decisions, both for our church, but also we know that we want to, to help people follow Jesus well. And so in order to help people follow Jesus well, sometimes framing up your values as choices helps people when they're in the moment, they're in the heat of things during the day, they need to be reminded that they don't have to be perfect, but as long as they're making progress and the character and priorities of Jesus, that's a good thing. And so all of our values are framed up as choices, uh, something over something else, give over get, story over sin, spirit over self, uh, send over stay, and progress over perfection. And so very intentional, and we apply it to our whole church and also to individuals as well. And I think a great case study for this value in scripture is Peter. So Peter is someone who Jesus invites to follow him. And Peter, two or three times in scripture, actually goes back to fishing apart from intentionally following Jesus. Mm. And Jesus keeps saying, no, Peter, come on, follow me, follow me, follow me. And then Peter really seems to start to get it. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. He makes this great confession. But then we even see right before Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter denies even knowing Jesus. And then Jesus restores Peter after his resurrection. They, They mend that relationship. And Jesus commissions Peter to advocate for Jesus, to pastor people, to be someone who goes out intentionally into the world and points people towards Jesus. And even as Peter's like, yes, I'm going to do this and do this. Well, we see later in Acts that actually Paul has to get on Peter because Peter's defaulted back to some of his old Jewish habits. And we read in Peter just some really really encouraging things that we see. Peter is growing more and more into Christ-likeness. He's becoming a better follower of Jesus. 
not just when Jesus walked physically on the earth and Peter was around him, but well after he has risen and gone back to the Father, we see Peter grow in the characters and priorities of Jesus. And so we want to see that same thing happen in our church. And so just a couple verses to root us, not just in the case study that is that is Peter, but just some verses that I think will point us to that progress over perfection really is a scriptural uh, perspective. And so in Philippians 1.6, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, alluding to his return. But again, saying that though he has started a good work, it is not complete. It is a lifelong journey. Uh, in Romans uh, chapter 8, we see Paul write against the church in Rome. It says, We know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And we see a progression right there in that last verse, in verse 30 of chapter 8. And we also see a conforming to the image of his son, Jesus. And we know experientially, while we may put our trust in Jesus, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always have the right priorities. We still have sin in our life. But we know that God is at work in our lives to growing us in the image of his son, Jesus. And so we're, we're being conformed in that way. And I love also just what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's starting in verse 7. He says, Now we have this treasure in jars of clay, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. And we are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. For we know that we are one who raised with Lord Jesus, will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything is for your benefit, so that as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so just there, even in Paul writing to the Corinthian church, we see we have these present experiences that are not always ideal. And in many ways, they can be overwhelming. They can be perplexing. They can be confusing. But our hope and our, and our awareness, what we have to recognize is that it comes with Jesus renewing us internally, that we are growing in greater confidence, greater assurance, that we are growing into greater Christ-likeness. 
And that is what we have to have that hope that we have to hang our hat on, that we have to be assured of, even while the external present experiences are far from ideal. So just a few scriptures that I think best capture this idea of progress over perfection. Hmm. I like that. I think that's really cool. And you going back to, in looking at someone in the life of Peter, I think one thing that can kind of happen to us as we kind of read the Bible, as we kind of hear these stories and we kind of skim through, we can think these kind of stories happen kind of simultaneously. They kind of happen really quick. Like you read through the book of Matthew and you're like, oh, like for you, sometimes you don't realize that that's taken place over the Mm -hmm. course of three years. Yeah. There's a book I remember that you were crazy about uh, when we were back at KC. It's called Four Chair Discipleship is Dan Spader and his whole concept and how he wrote out the New Testament kind of took it from a chronological order, Mm -hmm. looked at the different steps in which Jesus calls his disciples. And I'll let you explain that out. (laughs) You love it. Yeah, I I do. It's something that has helped me just approach Scripture in some ways with with a fresh perspective to recognize time does pass. And so exactly what you said is we read something on a page, and then the next page, sometimes we think those happens within sequential days, But sometimes in actuality, because of the way the writers wrote the Gospels, some of those events happened months, years of difference. And what we've got to recognize is there's been some development with these characters in this story. And so you apply that to something like a four chair, and you realize that someone is going to go from uh, who is lost who is not a believer in Jesus, and they're going to grow closer. Think of a piano bench sliding from one end to the other. And then finally, at some point, they're going to have to come to the grips with the fact of that is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God? And if yes, they are going to have to repent and believe. And then what happens is they are really, the birth, there's, there's a birth that happens. And so, Chair 2 is a new Christian, a new believer, but in many ways is a baby Christian. And just Mm -hmm. like uh, a child, a toddler has to learn certain things, a young Christian has to grow. They have to learn what it looks like to feed themselves, how to walk, how to talk, uh, who their uh, their parents are, so who, who your identity is found in for a Christian. And just like a person going from child to adolescence, to young adulthood, to adulthood. Mm. And really, while your age may not may be that, you can grow in maturity at different speeds and different rates. And that's what we're concerned with is someone who's going from an immature believer to a maturing believer and to someone who is actually, when they are a, a mature believer, is actually someone who is reproducing the character and priorities of Jesus into the lives of others. And so in many sense, we use the metaphor of family around our church a lot, but so they are spiritual parents. And the goal of the Christian life, I am convinced, is if we're going to make disciples who make disciples, to say it with consistent with that metaphor, is we need to be spiritual grandparents. So if you're not having someone who you've seen go from uh, death to life, through baptism and trusting and following Jesus. And then that person who you've seen trusted and follow Jesus, going out and reaching others and helping them trust and follow Jesus so that you're investing in the life of a person who's then investing in the lives of others. Uh, 
That's what it really means to be mature as you follow Jesus. And again, we're all gifted in different ways. We have different aspects that we bring to the body. But at the core, we all have the calling. We all have the mandate from Jesus to be people who make disciples make disciples. And there are some things that we can call people to to help do that, to help transition them from someone who is maybe have the mindset to be a Christian that you have to be perfect and have it all together to someone who is adopts the mindset that following Jesus is a lifelong journey. So what are some things that I can do? Some what are some very tangible reoccurring habits that I need to do that I need to have in my life so that I can make progress and really lose that attitude of I need to be perfect right now because the truth is Jesus sees us as perfect. God, the Father, sees us as perfect through Jesus. So how do we help our experiential reality catch up to the way in which God sees us? And so the first practical habit that I say is cast aside sin. We have to be very purposeful about identifying sin and crucifying it. And Hebrews talks about living a life of faith. And right after this long list of heroes of the faith, uh, people who <laughs> lived a life uh, well, and we can go back and look at some of those characters and go like, how, how well really did they live their life? Yeah, <laughs> too often we put them on a pedestal. Yeah. They were perfect, and then we read the scriptures, and we're like, oh. yeah, yeah. But but they were known as people of faith because because what what the author of Hebrews says is therefore, since we have such this large cloud of witnesses, these people who have also followed Jesus, who also lived the ways of God, surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so two things in there, casting aside sin, identifying it, and saying, no, I am going to discipline myself not to do that. No, we can't do that on our own. We need the strength of the Holy Spirit to do that. And the way in which we access the Holy Spirit and that strength is exactly what this passage says. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And so to cast aside sin, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. Mm. And I, people are going to be like, Kyle, this is, you keep saying the same things over and over again. This is why we're so passionate about people reading the Bible for themselves. Because in order to keep our eyes on Jesus, we have to get to know the real Jesus. And the way in which we get to know the real Jesus is through reading our Bible, to analyzing and looking at his character and priorities. Mm -hmm. And just to continue the thought of that Romans passage 8 from earlier, what Romans, what Paul does is he encourages them to continue to draw near to God. And so cast aside sin, draw near to God. And then 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about what it really looks like to follow Jesus. And actually, I think what I mean is the continuation of the passage that I read earlier, because we actually want to really work for the ministry of reconciliation. And that, that's a loaded word, reconciliation right there. <laughs> but, the, but the whole idea here is that we should work for the rightness of our world. And so let me go back couple really practical 
things to help us understand progress over perfection in our daily lives. Cast aside sin, pursue Jesus by drawing near to him, but then also work for the rightness of our world because we have a rightness with God and the way in which he sees us through Jesus. And so to sum it all up, progress over perfection, we become more like Jesus through a lifelong process rather than an overnight occurrence. And we want to see that exercised in our world today. Mm, I like that. And I think that ties right back into the scripture you mentioned earlier in 2 Corinthians, where it says we're being renewed day by day. Mm. And there's times in which we can kind of see someone come through the church doors and we're like, hey, like, why don't you just be a part of everything that's going on? Why don't you get it and it click? And yet sometimes it we expect them to be at the end result when they first yeah. walk through sometimes. Yeah. And I love this concept of progress over perfection because it really kind of dovetails back to even what we see in Scripture. Jesus' first interactions with Peter isn't, hey, Peter, you need to go make disciples of disciples and uh, expand my kingdom around the world. It's no, hey, come be a part of what I'm doing. Come follow me and see what's going on and see why I do what I do, the difference that I do in the world because of the relationship I have with my Father God. And I think that's super unique. When we begin to look at this, and we tie in this concept of being renewed, and you've talked about this a lot, this concept of renewal, this concept Mm -hmm. of uh, reconciliation. And even this weekend, you brought out this concept of these new heavens, new earth. Last week in a podcast, I didn't get to stop you, but you said this Edenic garden kind of concept. And so I want you to come back and... Yeah. Come to this, because these are some big words we throw yeah. around, some big Bible stuff. So these, this concept of new heavens, new earth, like what is this? Is yeah. this something where we're going to be remade from scratch? Is this something that's going to be restored? Is this going to be a return to original creation? Mm-hmm. Like what do you have in mind when you make the statement and where do you go? Yeah, I, I, I throw that around a lot because... We see that through the story of Scripture. If, if you start on the front pages of your Bible and you just read the first couple chapters, you are going to see this beautiful garden paradise. Whatever your view on creation is, that's, that's a discussion for, <laughs> for another time. But the picture you see is this perfect garden creation where you have humanity with God and there's purpose and there's meaning, and there's, uh, there's intimacy there, and there's uh, the way in which God treats humanity, and he, he gives them hey, work, name, exercise, be fruitful, and multiply around the earth. And, and it's not just have more kids, but really spread this community, spread this, uh, spread this intimacy that we have with the whole world, like like display that in a lot of different ways. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that disintegrates when Adam and Eve disobey the basically the terms of the relationship of a perfect eternal God and a temporary human being. So they disobey the terms like coming. And so then that's where we get the the brokenness and all the things that we see today, that the fractured, that things don't go as they ought to do. But when you flip to the back of your Bible in Revelation, what you see in Revelation 21 is this picture of a new heavens and a new earth. Now, 
if you read much of Revelation or if you have heard it talked about, you know there is there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of a crazy, <laughs> crazy stuff in there. And what I would encourage you is, is not to try to piece that all together to try to figure it out. But what we have to do is we can we can key in on a couple core concepts. And so we see in Revelation chapter 21 that there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And before I just read that out of, of the text of Revelation chapter 21, John, you asked something and you said, so, hey, is this going to be remade from scratch? Is everything restored? How, do, how does this work out? To be comp- completely honest, there's differing views on how this is actually going to work out. But at the core, the principle is that death, sin, and the dark spiritual forces of the world will be judged, and they will be no more. They will be they will be thrown into a lake of fire. That's that's the imagery that's there. And so, what once was all the death, sin, and corruption that we experience is going to have passed away. It's no longer going to be in there. And so likely God will recreate the world and we're going to be able to practice what was originally gifted to Adam and Eve in the garden. And so restoration, I think, is the best word to say that it's new, not in the sense of it's brought back out of thin air, but it's renewal in the sense of what was once new will be returned to that. Mm. And so Here's here's how we get that. There's there's a verse again in Second Corinthians five seventeen that says, "If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new." And so here, the Apostle Paul uses uh, this word in the expression. It's kainos, new creation. Paul did not intend to convey the idea that this is a completely different individual. There's continuity between the old person and the new person to such an extent that it remains the same person, but renovated. The person is the same, but the quality of the person has been transformed. And that's, the, in many ways, the hope that we cling to, that while our bodies, I've got an ache in my shoulder right now, <laughs> and it's like in the new earth, when heaven and earth essentially come back together we won't have to worry about aches and pains anymore. And that's what we cling to. And so in the same way, the biblical concept of the new earth is one of renovation and restoration. So either on this current earth or a rebuilt new planet, the conclusion is supported by Peter's words in his public speech in the temple at Jerusalem. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus that Christ appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient of time. And so this earth will be cleansed or destroyed by fire for the purpose of restoration as expressed again in Peter's letter to some suffering believers. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and earth and everything that is done will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of person ought you 
to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of our God, of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire. And so there's this refining that takes place. I hope I've muddied the water a little bit to, <laughs> to, to, to say like how that all exactly happens. We get a glimpse. We get some picture. There's going to be a continuity between the old and the new, but also the new is going to be is not going to be exactly like the world in which we experience it now because sin, death, and the dark forces of this world will no longer be no more. We won't experience the frustration and the brokenness. And in fact, Romans talks about the groaning of creation. It wants to get back to what it once was. And so Revelation the 21 is our primary text, though, where we see the vision of what everything is going to look like. And so let me just read that because I think while we can talk in philosophical terms, we can throw in some <laughs> other passages. The best the best thing to do is just to read that passage. And so John in Revelation chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, but for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for or her husband. And then the one seat on the throne down in verse 5 says, Look, I'm making everything new. And he also said, Write these words because they are faithful and true. And in between those verses, you see, look, God is dwelling with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God who will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will no longer exist exist because the previous things have passed away. And those were all the results of sin and corruption and death. And those will no longer exist. And so there's going to be continuity. We're, we're, we're going to know who we are, but we're going to know who we are in Jesus from eternity, living on a new, perfect, reunited heaven and earth. And so we get that hint of that back in Genesis 3, that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to give us an ability to access that, going to conquer evil by stepping on the snake's head. And we see the snake biting the heel of this person, which points to, hey, Jesus had to die on the cross. He had to be resurrected Mm. so that this can happen. And what's amazing is Colossians chapter 1 speaks to this whole dynamic. And so I'll pause there and... At, stay tuned for future sermons and for future podcasts because this this theme is we're going to come back to it again yeah. and again because it is so pivotal to the story of scripture to the life of the believer and to what Jesus is doing and calls us to do in the world. Yeah, we're really just opening the door to this concept of the new heavens, new earth, um, God's um, reconciliation through Jesus, this renewal that God has put into place and what the hope we have for the future. And so that's why we kind of jumped into this just a little bit, kind of did a big overview of kind of what we mean when we say these terms and really where we are and why we use this as an, uh, why we use this as our hope. And really kind of where we began to focus this week is that our hope 
uh, that's lived out through our faith. We live our faith because we have a hope in the new creation. We have a hope in the new heavens and new earth because of Jesus' sacrifice, Mm -hmm. that God is going to make everything new through him one day. We no longer have to deal with the sin, Mm -hmm. destruction, and death that we experience in this world, yet we get to look to something beautiful in which God has prepared for us in the future. So if you're listening to this, I want to give you some homework real quick. Go to the Bible Project on YouTube or flip over on your podcast app. Don't, promoting don't, another I podcast. I know, <laughs> promoting another, another podcast. Here's why I want you to do that is they do an exceptional job at carrying the story from the garden to the new heavens and new earth hmm. uh, and what that means and how Jesus plays its role into it into a lot of their different videos. Yeah. And so... I recommend that if this concept is new, they do an even better job than I'm doing right now, which will leave for you to decide (laughs) how I'm doing with that. But that would be a great way to get you a good taste of this story of Scripture. And if you're someone who's not a follower of Jesus and this idea of perfect garden and perfect new creation – that comes at the end of our Bible. Those are some great videos to watch and get acquainted with. And here's what I would say to do for that. If you have questions, message us. We would love to sit down and discuss some of those videos with you. Because again, they do an exceptional job. But also, while they are thematic, while they do cover great themes and great specificity, the challenge is to bridge those themes and those concepts and that overarching story to your everyday life. Mm-hmm. And that's really what this podcast is about. And that's what, what we want to do well as a church is bridge some of these themes, some of these story arcs, some of these concepts, and bridge that to say, how does that intersect with your everyday life, when you wake up and the feet, your feet hit the floor, your alarm has gone off, and you're getting ready to get ready for the day, you're going to go take the shower, brush your teeth, get ready for work. As you then go throughout your day, how, do, how does the idea of a new heaven and new earth and the hope of that translate to your everyday? And so we want to help you do that. We want to bridge that gap. And so there's just a small promotion for what and why we, we want to do what we're doing and why we're having these conversations. So you can hear that from me firsthand. <laughs> yeah, I love this. And this is cool for us to, for us, one, to be, to challenge ourselves to explain these Christian terms in which we throw around. And that's kind of where we're going in this next part is how you kind of really gave us a challenge, a twofold challenge this week, a challenge with this concept of what it looks like to pray before our meals and a challenge in communion. Mm. And sometimes these are things that we just kind of assume people understand in the yeah. church, why we do it, um, and all that. And so let's kind of dive into those a little bit as to why we actually do them, mm. whether they're biblical, whether they're tradition, <laughs> and what's the value of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I challenged our church to pray before meals this week because it puts their, their the practice of their faith in the public square. So, again, there's a lot of reasons that we could get into for pray before meals, traditional, scriptural. And I am going to touch on that a little bit. But the main focus of it is the simplicity that a praying before a meal puts your faith out in public. 
And specifically, it challenges the notion that faith belongs in our churches, in our hearts, and in our homes. And I made the joke that actually faith does belong in a booth at Applebee's. And so (laughs) just as I said a moment ago, we want to bridge these concepts to the everyday. And so prayer, specifically praying before a meal, is one of the ways in which we can jog our mind and remind ourselves that we are living in part of a bigger story, that we have uh, a God who is at work in the world that gives us good gifts and that we are the recipients of those gifts. And then every good gift comes from above. And so to say a prayer before a meal challenges the mindset of entitlement, that what we get what we pay for. And we should automatically have food and that that's just a given. And so the value of prayer is to really say, no, like what I'm about to consume is a gift from God. And this is especially important as we get further and further away from growing our own food, from from cultivating the land, because the principle of time still applies there. It takes time for things to grow. We have grown accustomed to the idea that, well, I should just be able to go buy apples every month, every day of the year at the grocery store. I should go be able to buy bananas or pineapples every month, every day of the year. And we just assume that that's the way in which the world works. And in some ways, because of the progress of humanity, we have that. But what praying before a meal does, as we are about to consume some food, is it puts us back in a position of gratitude. In fact, we see Jesus giving thanks before he breaks bread and passes it out to people. He does this before he feeds the 5,000. He does this as he institutes communion, the Lord's Supper. Is There is an idea of, thank you, God, for providing this. And Jesus even lumps in worry in the Sermon on the Mount of saying we should not have to worry for what we need because God wants to provide and he will take care of us. But so often, specifically, 21st century America, Western culture, the assumption is that it will just happen or be a given. No matter what stage or state of life that you are in, There's an element there of an entitlement that, yeah, of course, it should just be given to me. It should just be provided, which when we have that entitlement, when we have that expectation, we cease to be grateful. And really what prayer does is it challenges us to be grateful. It challenges us to to remember that we are part of of God's activity in the world. And so prayer puts us square uh, and center in front of other people, especially if we we do it at a public place. Mm -hmm. This concept of God's provision really, it brings me back to the Old Testament because we, I don't think we see it as much in the forefront. God's provision is still there, but it's not as like smack you in the face as what we see in the Old Testament in which we see um, the nation of Israel Take them for an example. When they're leaving Egypt and they're traveling through the desert and they're like, God, there is no food here. There's no water. Why Mm. have you brought us into this land? And God says, 
I will provide for me. He provides water out of a rock. He drops manna from the sky. And he says, remember me and give thanks. He says, I will provide for my people. Those who follow after me, I provide. And sometimes for us, especially like where we are today, like you said, you go into a supermarket. It's supposed to be like a magical thing. It's just like the snap of a finger. Food's going to be there. I drive down the road. I'm going to pass multiple food shops along my way. It's just kind of a given for us today. But when we dig through scripture, we see that God truly has shown himself as a God who provides. I think that really changes our scope in this sense. Yeah. And again, we I, I use this as an application point to say this is a way to put your faith on display and ultimately tie yourself back to the hope that we do have in heaven. And so we can give just we see some good examples in scripture we have a lot of i think just tradition that's baked into praying before a meal and so when we do it out of ritual and not out of remembrance it's it can be a real hindrance to what the the purpose of the ritual was in the first place. And that's why we do rituals is to jog our remembrance. That's why we do the ritual air quotes here (laughs) of communion every single week Mm. is because it's to help us reflect and remember on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Mm. And in fact, that's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, when he institutes communion, he says he took bread, gave thanks. There's that prayer. Thank you, God, for giving it to us. He broke it. He gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. And so he institutes this bread and this wine here to say, Reflect on who I am what I've done for you. And in many ways at this point, what he will do for them in the cross and what he has done for us as believers. And so we have to be able to recognize that if we are going to live a life that's centered around Jesus, which that's what Christianity is, a life centered on Jesus, then we have to be able to put our faith into practice, and we have to have some habits, which communion and prayer before a meal, I suggested our two applications, our two habits to put forward Mm. so that we can remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Yeah, I love that because each weekend when we take communion, we specifically say that we're doing this because we want to reflect on our 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 connection with God because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Mm -hmm. And it's cool to hear you say that. And for us to really kind of tie this back into the overarching takeaway in which we got from your sermon this past weekend, and that, um, you know, there's this concept of living a life of faith. Mm. And for you, you gave us two practical applications that we can incorporate into what it looks like to live a life on faith and they specifically tie us back and make us remember who Jesus is, remember our connection with God, remember through prayer, and remember through communion. And it's 
cool to see us make that connection. And when we remember that, it enhances the hope we're able to have in that new heavens, new earth, new creation in which we talked about, that reconciliation that God is bringing about. Yeah, absolutely. See, I was as I was thinking through what we were talking specifically about today, and I got your questions, and I was, I was reflecting on this myself. I absolutely want people to live out their faith. I want them to be bold about it. I want them to not, when they're sitting at a booth at a restaurant, to not get those funny feelings of like, am I being rude to my waiter or waitress? Mm -hmm. Because we're saying a prayer, we're giving thanks to God because it challenges that materialistic aspect of our world that we live inside a closed Mm -hmm. box and nothing can intervene in that closed box. We don't want to affect other people's life. We don't want the people in the booth next to us to hear our prayer because we're invading on their space, their belief. Exactly, exactly. And this week, the big focus was the hope that we have evokes faith and results in love. Because, see, we won't endure in this life. We won't adopt the mindset of progress over perfection if there's not an eternal hope. Mm. We won't, we read some of those verses earlier, we won't think about endurance and perseverance and growing into more Christ likeness. If there's not a hope of a reward that we'll get at the end of the day. Mm. And what that does is when there's that hope, it brings about a faith that manifests itself every day. Specifically, the way in which it manifests itself is that practice of faith, but also a love for other people, a bearing with one another, a caring for with one another, an advocating for one another, a being a present with people. And that's where you see is such why Paul credits the Colossians because they are they are so secure, they are so confident about the eternal hope that they're just living their faith for all to see. Mm. And the way in which that comes about is through a love that is unparalleled to the rest of the world. Because flip this backwards slightly, if the rest of the world and rest of society has this assumption that what you pay for is what you're supposed to get and lives in this entitlement culture of this is what's supposed to happen to me. Mm -hmm. What happens is you start to see people and systems and opportunities as objects to personally benefit you and for your satisfaction rather than maybe a person for who they are and how God has uniquely gifted them. And you start to see people as objects specifically rather than people uniquely created, uniquely gifted, as worthy of love and not and not someone to be used or discarded or cast aside. And we we live in a world today that says, oh yeah, yeah, we we, we want to love everyone. And I absolutely agree with that sentiment. We are called to love. But what sustains that love, what helps us persevere to continue to push forward in that love is an eternal hope that's found through the lens 
of Jesus. And we have to recenter ourselves around Jesus, who he is, what he did, and, and the best way to be human that he puts forward. Or else we settle for a cheaper version of humanity. We settle for a cheaper version of love. And in many ways, we start to view the, the way of love through the way in which we want to be loved rather than the way in which love actually is, which transcends ethnic groups, genders, different identities, backgrounds, ages, and go back to Revelation. The hope that we have in Revelation and what's given and actually Revelation uh, chapter 7 is that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation together centered around Jesus. And so the message of love that comes from and the, the habit of love that comes from a faith that is rooted in the hope of this beautiful vision and is, is just so powerful and so needed in our world today. Uh, and so we want people to live out their faith, but have their faith be rooted in an eternal hope, a secure hope that is secure because of Jesus. And so we won't live out our faith if we aren't tied to hope. So let's be a people that every day are tied to an eternal hope. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Please subscribe. Also, we'd love for you to share this podcast and our other social media with your family and friends. This will be a great way to hear our weekly teaching and additional conversations we're having around Generations Church. Thanks for joining us.